Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Age Figures. Hanging out with the coughing and clearing the throat. Know, Mary Goulet, you good to go now? Sorry. It's the winter, the it's winter the win- throat thing of, of San Diego. There are rough winters in San Diego. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? How's it going? How you All doing? is good. There, sir. Good, good, good. Wade's got it under control in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Age Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of exactly how they do that. So uh, before we jump into uh, today's interview, uh, I, I just wanted to wish everyone who is tuning in for the first time a very happy new year. And it actually begs the question, because Mary, this is the first time you're joining us here in the new year. So welcome. Happy 2020 you, to yes. you. So it kind of begs the question. This is completely off topic here, but I'm just really curious. Like, when do you stop saying happy new year? Like, what? Like when do you actually mm. stop? Like, shouldn't it be over by now? Like, somebody I just saw today said, Happy New Year. I'm like... It depends on how long since you last saw him. So if you haven't seen him since... So how long could this go on? Because, like, if there are family members that you haven't seen... For, like, you see them every Christmas, and that's it. You see them once a year every Christmas. Do you tell them Happy New Year at Christmas time? I don't know. There's still... I was dropping Trish and Olivia off at the airport this morning, and there's still Christmas stuff up in Little Italy. So. And when do you take your decorations down? Now, that's oh, the other question. I did the day after <laughs> Christmas. Bam, gone. You're right. Uh, see, that's how I am. It's like, okay, Christmas is over. It's got to go. And my wife has nothing but respect. Because it, you reach a certain point, I think, with the Christmas decorations, where you're just kind of like, now it's so late after Christmas, now you're just cool. Like, it's a, <laughs> it, there's that period of time where it's like, you got to take these things down because, you know, hey, Christmas is over. And then it becomes a point in time where you're like, Okay, that guy's just cool. He just doesn't care. Like now he gets points. My friend for he leaves her up. lights on her house year round. But that's because they just don't want to take them down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a whole Gosh. other thing. Well, your 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 neighborhood is full up of mansions. So I mean, to get up on the roof of those things, you gotta. That's a whole other discussion. Chris, uh, Chris is joining us here. Uh, Chris, did you take down your Christmas decorations yet or no? Yeah, they're down. They're down. Did you ever put them up? Oh, yeah. You did. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you stop saying Happy New Year? I mean, that's really the question of the moment. Yeah, I, uh, I stopped. You know, I stopped. We sent out all of our Happy New Year things and texts, cards, everything, and that was it for us. Do you, do you cover all the bases in your family? Do you, do you do the holiday cards and you do the Christmas texts and the, and the, and the New Year's phone calls? Do you, do you do the whole nine? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that's really a loaded question. Do I personally, do, you personally? do all the cards? No, I do texts. Nice. And I do phone calls. Nice. But the do- cards go out, but I sign them. Got it. Nice, man. All right. So uh, is let's, that rude? No, that's perfect. No. You know, that's what that's that's why you're on Beyond Eight Figures because <laughs> <laughs> you know how to let people work in their zone of genius while you work in yours, and yours is the signature, and let everybody else do all the the heavy lifting around that. All right. So we're joined today by and I and I assume it's Chris Guerrero. Am I butchering that? You are the first person to get that perfectly right the first time. And, yeah. the, per- and, and the first person this wow, year to get it right this year. Wow, way to start the Thank year. Thank you very much. I know, right? you usually not. don't. All right, thanks for joining us on Beyond Eight Figures. That's as good as I get. I will see you guys now in the next episode. All right, so, um, so Chris, what, uh, what qualifies you for hanging out with us here on Beyond Eight Figures? Have you exited from a business for more than eight figures? Do you currently run businesses or a business that grosses eight figures plus annually or both? Yeah. Yeah, both. So, um, uh, for my first first eight figure company was a uh, a health club turned into a chain of health clubs, um, and um, you know that was the biggest struggle because it was my very first company, and mm-hmm. uh, and and although it was a, a my first decade in that business was uh, lived on credit cards, and <laughs> there's a lot of tears and blood that are put into that and we could get into that if you want to but that uh, that company ended up selling for uh just under eight mi- 18 million and 18, um and where, and where then, was that based and what was the name of it new york new jersey pennsylvania that was executive fitness club mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how old were you yeah. when you started because you don't look like you're old enough to have had a, a decade into anything at this point Holy you look like shit. you're about 28 so you got my name right you wished me uh, you know happy new year and i'm hitting and on you you're giving me <laughs> compliments that's wonderful i'm 52 I'm years old yes how old 52 get out of here it's all right so you guys have to see the video version of this kelly at some point we have to actually post the the videos of these things now so that people can actually just see chris 52 really yeah, yeah. Well, no doubt. I mean, obviously, with the health and fitness background, you that that's got to be a pretty big part of your life. So you've got a million things going on. Do do you still stay pretty active? You look like it. 
Uh, not nearly as active as I used to be, but uh, yeah. So every single morning I'm, I'm doing some kind of exercise, whether it's in the gym or, or, or something. Um, and every night, you know, I try to do yoga. So, you know, I'm in the trying phase, yeah. whereas I used to be in the, hey, this is my life phase. Got it. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's happening, yeah. not as much as I'd like it to. So the fitness, so the fitness club was the first real endeavor. Take us through, um, because a, a lot of this are stepping stones for what it is that you're able to do now. Obviously, you have an $18 million exit. We can get into some of the details uh, around that. But take us all the way back then. How old were you when you started that? What was the, take us to the embryonic stages in terms of where that idea wow. came from. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I actually started while I was in college as a personal fitness trainer and, 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 you know, just trying to make some money doing something that I really enjoy doing. And, um, and I, in between my junior and my senior year of college, I turned my personal training company, my personal training company, which was just me into a company, which was me. And we had uh, nearly 150 trainers that worked with me wow. as independent contractors up and down the East coast. And, um, so and gotta, I learned, we got to time you out there though, for a second, because there's a lot of sole practitioners and of course folks jump in anytime here, whenever you're ready. But, um, the, the question of the moment is, so it's you, you've got this training thing. So there's a lot of solopreneurs out there who have these businesses and they want to scale. And, and you perhaps know the theme of the, the show here is to start to scale. And in some cases to exit from a business, how do you go from you just being this personal trainer to turning it into an actual company and being able to hire 150, I assume, independent contractors. Yes. Yes. So a lot of lessons in there for me. Uh, so number one, it was, a, I was still a sole proprietorship. So I, I don't know technically that I would call that a company. It was a, it was a very small business and I was pushing my way through that. Um, second, uh, I, I, I started doing, I started bringing on other trainers for two reasons. Number one, because I couldn't sleep. So I watched a lot of late night infomercials and there was an infomercial on by a guy who you taught this system about how to place classified ads to make money. And I thought, wow, I could probably use this model to grow what I'm doing right now. And, uh, and, and although I had a couple of people who were working with me at the time because they were personal trainers in the gym that I was working at, I'm sorry, working out at. And, and I, we, I would filter, you know, clients to them, assuming that they would follow our guidelines and everything else that I had outlined. And then I decided from there, I would just start placing classified ads and we place classified ads for personal trainers. And we also place classified ads for clients for our for personal training. Mm -hmm. And back then it was personal training wasn't anything like what it is right now. Now you say the word personal trainer and everybody has either had a personal trainer or understands exactly what it is. Back then people didn't understand what the heck this, this stuff was. They thought it was mm -hmm. a passing fad and we didn't actually go to gyms. We literally went to their houses. So it was a very elite kind of a thing and, and, and very novice idea back then. So it worked out very, very well. We were able to catch on quickly. We got a lot of trainers who wanted to be part of this. Um, and it, it was wonderful. Now it's a completely different animal. And I probably, probably, you know, when you build a business and you do very well with it, chances of you duplicating that because of the way the industry changes is rare, which is definitely the case there. Mm -hmm. So so were you uh, just taking a cut? You were basically getting leads in. And I was taking all the money and I was paying the, the trainers. And, and there, therein comes this first big lesson in business where independent contractors, um, it's very difficult to build a business based on independent contractors only, which is the lesson that I learned because they create the relationship. You know, one of the big words in our businesses are always relationship. How do we build deeper relationships? And back then we were not building deep relationships with people for on my stand, standpoint, uh, my, my trainers were. So they were building the relationships and the people wanted to renew with them only. And they were giving them better prices. And they, 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 it was, it was upsetting, which brought me into health club industry, you know, a house where I was able to house all of these trainers and do, you know, grow and scale something, mm -hmm. which was terrific. Mm -hmm. hmm. And, and just, just to be clear on that then. So you went from going into people's houses to then having your own facility 
and were you making enough money off of the independent contractors, the, the people that were doing their own stuff, to then be able to fund the acquisition of that physical location? Because I know for a lot of people who need a physical location for what it is that they want to do, making that transition is exorbitantly expensive, and they, and they can never make that jump. How did you make that leap? Uh, so one of my clients at the time was a guy named Vic, and Vic was uh, Vic came to me and said, "Hey, you know, uh, one of my investments is this building, and inside of this building, they have an area that would be wonderful for a health club. Would you ever? Did you ever think about being in the health club industry?" And I said, "Now remember this like it was yesterday because it was such a shocking thing that came out of my mouth. I probably had ne have ne would never say this again, but I said uh, I would kill for that." Mm. Right. So it was 50 50. You know, he said, hey, listen, I've got this this building and I'm a partner inside of this building. If you want to if you have some funding, if you have, you know, enough wherewithal to be able to come in as a partner in this building, then you could run the entire health club area. And so that was my first forte into being in the health club business. Um, so uh, so and it was a very easy one because that was a that was a large building with multiple ice skating rinks in inter, inside ice skating rinks and an arcade. So it had it had a, it, its own traffic source of people who probably wanted to be part of a health club. So for me to go in there and build this small health club with an aerobic studio, with a spinning studio, with a whole bunch of other cool things, as well as the machines and the weights, um, that was wonderful because I was able to break into an area where. I, I could market to the people who are already inside the building. Mm -hmm. So easy. I, you know, as opposed to going in and starting your own building, I, I think that uh, growing a business, you know, people say location, location, location. That's the most important part of it. Um, look, but the location in front of the right people, your target audience just makes things so substantially easier. And I think that was just such a blessing at the time. So is this why you said you were also, starting on credit cards? Because if you went in 50-50, unless you were really making a killing in that beginning, how did you actually get started with him? Well, so I obviously we were making a decent amount of money with a personal training. So I had a little bit of bank set aside back then. And that was enough for me to get in and say, hey, here's, here's what the deal is. And the negotiation was, I would come in as a partner for the building and my equity in the part in the building was bought by this a small amount of cash. And then um, giving them a piece of all money that came in from that the health facility that we were going to build um, um, for a period of time. And that period of time ended up being about five years. And then everything else, all the leasing of the equipment and everything else was on me. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you, I mean, you've got a number of businesses and we want to just make sure we get uh, ample opportunity to talk about the other stuff that you've got going on. Of course, what you're doing now as well. So, one location worked out really good. You ended up expanding. As far as the the exit is concerned, did did somebody approach you? Did you proactively go after someone to buy this because you were just you were just done? Yeah. So at the end of my enjoyment of all that, you know, I got to the point where I was showing up at the office and I felt like I was in this empty wine bottle with this cork on it, and I was jumping up, trying to escape and trying to grow. And, but every time we opened up another location, it was like another, you know, 50 plus thousand dollars a month just to turn the lights on. It was exhausting because it was, uh, it's so expensive in, in, in a cutthroat industry. Um, and I really just wanted to get out and do something else, but I wasn't mm -hmm. sure what the heck I wanted to do. So I decided I wanted to sell. And when I decided that I went out to a bunch of buddies of mine who were in business at the time and they had larger companies of mine and they had some contacts. And I said, Hey, what do you think the next step would be to do this? I want to try to exit this. And, uh, and they said, listen, if you don't have people coming to you, then you need a business broker. You need a broker who's going to go out there who understands the industry. So I hired a guy who was in the industry, understood how to sell health clubs, had contacts, had contacts with lenders, this whole thing. We worked with him for a year. And during that year, the best, um, the best price that he came back to me with was, the, here, here's the price. The price was here and my debt was, you know, my debt on just one building for one location was higher than that. So mm. I would literally be getting paid enough to walk away and still owe a ton of money for this business, yeah. which was nowhere near what I wanted to do. Um, but I did learn something from him. And what I learned was that the company itself was not appealing 
to the lenders. It was appealing to people who wanted to buy it. They wanted to be in the industry or they wanted to expand their clubs, but they did not, but, but the, the club itself was not something that they would be able to use as an asset to get funding. So, uh, so obviously exited with him, like decided he's not going to be something, some part of our team uh, to help sell this. And I spent the next year uh, pulling in every single contact that I could to help me get, you know, set up lunch dates with uh, bankers and lenders. And, uh, and, I, and over the course of that year, I would take these people out to lunch or I'd meet them in their office and I would just talk to them and say, hey, listen, this is, this, I, I know two things. I know the asset that I have and I know the amount of money that I want, right? I want, I want $20 million and I have this asset that I believe is worth far more than that. Uh, can you please tell me what would make this a wet dream for you guys to come in here and just find, you know, to help somebody to purchase this from us. And, um, and I ended up creating this checklist and it took a long time to do that. But as that year was progressing, I was implementing some of the tactics that every single lender said was important and changing the business and developing SOPs and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and at the end of the year, I'm left with this amazing checklist and, uh, and then offers. So mm -hmm. it became a deal of entertaining offers. Mm -hmm. And and just so just so we're clear, how did you arrive at the the twenty million dollar valuation on that? Yeah, the exact same way every first time seller arrives at a valuation for their company. That's what it's worth. <laughs> that's what you think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what, what you I want. want. Yeah, that was exactly what I did. By the way, I threw my hands up in the air and I said, "That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the number." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, seriously. No, seriously. So how did they, okay, fine. So how did they come to the conclusion that it was worth 18? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. So, so <laughs> the uh, um, revenues that were coming in and then the projections. So here's what we did. We went out there and we created these, uh, uh, we looked at all the things that they wanted in order to make it worth their while, right? And, and it was the hard assets and what their real value was. It was, what, what is the, how, how does having a strong team, a team with a past history of building health clubs and, and, and successfully profiting in each one of these departments of the health clubs, having that team in there is worth a small amount of money. Having these soft assets that we could leverage for projected revenue was worth a certain amount of money, which means you know not just signed contracts for people who were members of the clubs for months and months in advance, you know, our 12 month contracts, but also sign contracts for yoga and spinning and all these other smaller mm -hmm. ancillary things and a history that I could prove a, a paper history that I could prove that of the renewal rates our normal renewal rates for these contracts and then signed rental agreements for other businesses that we had uh, uh, put inside of those companies. That, but there was a list of these things that increased the value as far as banks or lenders were concerned. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, how much of the 18 were you able to personally keep? After taxes? Yeah, before. Um, oh, geez, this is back in 2004. Um, Everybody always remembers their first exit. I don't. <laughs> I don't remember the exact, the amount that actually stayed in the bank accounts. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do remember, and by, by the way, it was, um, it, it was just under 18 that we had signed for at the table. And then, and then everything was taken out. The attorney fees were taken out. Sure. The taxes were taken out before I even, before it even entered my radar. Yeah. Smart. I don't know. It was, it was, uh, an, it was a eye twitching, embarrassing amount, far lower than I had ever thought because of taxes. Yeah. So how about this? Were you by the end of this and you had never raised any outside capital for that particular endeavor other no. than the partner that you. Oh, so the partner I bought out after uh, after a few years, I bought him out because when we wanted to expand, he didn't want to be part of that expansion any longer because he thought it increased risk for him and his family. So mm -hmm. the rest of that was all me. There were there. We, we never did acquire any funding. I got you. OK, so you kept a fairly large percentage then of of the business. Oh, all of that was you did stayed with me. Oh yeah. yeah I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't realize that was what your question was. There were no partners involved in that. We paid off a lot of debt. Uh, and that was it. Yeah. Awesome. 
So did you, it's, it's always an interesting question when somebody exits and regardless of what the exact number was, obviously it was more than, you know, a few dollars and not as much as you would have liked after taxes and everything else, but enough where you sit back and you go, okay. And let me ask you this. So, so do you then at that point say, I worked really hard. I got to the exit. I'm going to keep X number of dollars over here as that nest egg. And I never touch that. And that's going to be, you know, my, my safety zone, whatever you want to call it. And then I take the balance of whatever that is and invest that into the next endeavor. Cause as an entrepreneur, I mean, you're not going to just sit there and you were fairly young at the time. So you're not yeah. just going to sit there for the next 70 years and play golf. At least I don't think that was the plan for you. And obviously based on what you've done. So how did you look at the, the um, uh, the capital that was then sitting there in your lap. How did you approach that? that that's a great question. So uh, so here is uh, my my biggest challenge at that point was not no like like at that point when I was able to sell that company, I had learned a lot of lessons and I was very very good at actually now understanding how to scale a company. What I didn't know, what I was very poor at, was what to do with money as it came in. So. During that sale of that company, I, I, I did something that I believe was probably my best decision ever in business, and that was to put together a board of directors. And that board of directors was very integral in helping me try to figure out what the heck to do as the money was coming in. Because mm. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that if history repeated itself, that money would come in and uh, you know, a couple of years down the road, it wouldn't be there anymore because I would have done other things that, that weren't part of a plan for growth. So uh, um, what I ended up doing was um, going in, getting involved with a venture capital firm where I could do what I was good at and, uh, and start scaling companies. And, uh, and, 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 and I, I believe, you know, I listen to a lot of friends of mine who love real estate and they say, as soon as money comes in, you, they put it into real estate because that's a very safe haven. I don't understand real estate, mm -hmm. but I do understand business. So my safe haven is not stocks. It's not real estate. What I ended up learning back then was that Money put in the bank disappears relatively quickly, uh, but money put into an asset that I understand how to grow, like businesses, ends up becoming assets to me as a you know something that I could grow. So that's what I ended up doing. So I, I over the course of years um, took that money and you know eventually immediately a lot of it went into the bank. Slowly it went into places where it was okay you know put away for my kids. Some of it put away for my my future. And then a lot of the rest of it was put into quote unquote investments, which are mostly businesses for me. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Richie. Yeah. I was going to ask, what was it? Was it schooling? Was it a family member? What was it that got you to be good at scaling the business? Cause there was nothing in the conversation that stood out. That was like, that's it. But obviously you're good at it. Yeah. Um, so, so and struggling and bootstrapping it all. And every single time that I had a little bit of money come, so my, you know, my, my expenses would grow, my revenue would grow, my re expenses. And we're always, you know, you know, just very close to break even off. But there were months where we had extra money come in, where we ran, well, I got really good at running a promotion, extra money would come in and I'd go out there and I'd hire a consultant and I'd try to figure out something from there. And then we'd do it again and implementing everything else and we'd grow and the company was scaling as far as revenue goes, but my expenses were scaling also. So eventually I got very good at sitting on my wallet and not just frivolously throwing money at everything. Anybody said, yes, I could help you with this. We gave them money and that had to stop, right? Mm -hmm. It became very structured in, in maintaining growth, understanding things like lifetime value of customers and optimizing things and going out there and creating relationships. We ended up focusing on three main things. And we still focus on that in every entity that I'm part of right now. It's revenue reach and relationships in every single company. And, uh, um, and, and sitting on your wallet, I guess, would be a fourth. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I have to say that gym business was probably one of the toughest businesses you could have cut your teeth on. Because my sister worked at a club and just getting the members to stay with the program to keep the trainers going because they would, their sales would dip or people get sick and skip their appointments and a variety of different things. So now after you exited that, did you just have like such a keen 
eyesight for opportunity and what to avoid completely, like you just said, the reach, relationship, and revenue, that, that's a huge give. But yeah. anything else that opened your eyes? Yeah, stay, I stay within my box. So, so to answer your question, um, did I see a lot of opportunity? I, 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 I stayed very focused on the opportunities that I had experience with. So uh, right after the clubs, I had my first book came out and we married a lot of the on, uh, sorry, the offline tactics that we had used to grow during those last few years that we actually did grow in a very good structured way. We took all that education. I used it online, which was brand new to a lot of the online communities and, and where most books sell a couple of thousand copies. My first book sold over 60,000 copies in the first 60 days, 319,000 copies in the first year. I got turned into workbooks and videos and in a TV show on an, in an internet TV program and, uh, and so many other little things. And so I was able to then utilize my knowledge, not just of businesses, but also of memberships, that retention in memberships to create these online membership programs and keep people engaged for a long period of time, which was wonderful. We learned a lot of things in the health club industry um, that you know we had a we had we averaged an 80 percent retention month over month in the health clubs. Mm. Met retention in person is much easier than retention online. So w- the way we translated that, we took these membership programs that I wanted. I wanted a 12 plus month retention online, and we were struggling to do that. We just couldn't keep people's attention span for that long. But we, what we ended up doing was creating mini membership sites where they could actually reach an end after uh, three months. And, and after three months, uh, a membership buyer has already proved something to us that they, that they are, they want that accountability. They want that membership. They want to be part of that community. So selling them another short-term membership became very easy. So now we could sell them four chunks of memberships and keep them engaged for different topics, whether it's weight loss, looking younger, feeling younger, reducing your pain, all that kind of stuff inside of that industry. So that worked out very well. Mm-hmm. And, and so just to be clear, did you, you said you took that capital and you, you turn it into, and you use the term venture capital. So I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. Did you start a firm? Did you buy into a firm or are you bought just using, you bought into an existing yeah. venture capital firm? Yes. Gotcha. And so um, that firm, how long was that firm already in existence by the time you joined it, it was with in, them? It, it was in existence, uh, but had little momentum. So it was in existence for about three years before we went into it, I believe. Mm-hmm. There was only a few people involved in it. And now there's so 14 investors in it. There's 14 investors. Okay. And are you a ma- are you are you still a managing partner in that? Yeah. Or are you, you are still involved with that? And so um, I would think that even that in and of itself would have been a very good investment because typically, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but typically in that scenario, when investments pay off, they go into the, the pool, so to speak, which increases the value uh, of, the, in, of the venture capital firm itself, right? So, correct? Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So, um, so when, we, uh, when we invest in a company, by the way, so... Uh, I assume you have a, a pretty deep knowledge of the VC world or angel world or other kind of investment field. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in that industry where a lot, there's a lot of inventory, a lot of companies that actually want funding. Um, so you can set whatever, whatever you want in return for that investment. Uh, and so there's venture capital money that will go in and for a very small investment, they'll come in there and they will help you grow just with money. Then there's smart money. And then there's companies like ours that will say, well, if you fit our criteria, we, we require this. We have 51% ownership in your company. And then after money is paid back, um, we still maintain up to 30% ownership because we're coming in with smart money. We're mm-hmm. either bringing team in that will stay there, or we are bringing the mindset in that will continue to keep our Rolodex you know, open to you and we'll keep you growing. Um, so, and that's where we are. So yes, everybody maintains a place inside of our portfolio, even after paying their money back. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Yeah. I know we got the, the jets going overhead on the air show or whatever it is, but thanks for that weight. All right. So, so to that end, what there were, there were three partners. You were the fourth partner when you, yep. when you came in, what, what was the buy-in for you to become a, a quarter partner at that point? And then if somebody wants to come on as a partner now, what's the buy-in? So there's, there's no buy-in. There now. is no buy-in so, now. Yeah, no, there, there isn't any. Um, um, 
back when I first went in there, it was a couple million dollars to, to invest in order to go in. Um, we very strategically chose the people. It wasn't necessarily the amount they didn't, there was a minimum to come in financially. However, there was a brain power that we were looking to achieve so that we were able to either go into a new industry or we were able to improve the assets that we currently had inside of our portfolio. And that's mm -hmm. what we were looking for. Got it. So, so when you reference the fact that there have been four eight figure plus businesses, um, you're talking about your portfolio through the venture capital no, firm? No, no, no. So, you know, so clubs were one. Uh, then we had the, uh, you know, the health programs online, which include books, videos, membership sites, things like that. That was housed under a company called Wisdom Books, um, still is. Uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the, one of the values of venture capital firm for me, this falls into the, the, my next answer, um, was that we had a, a tremendous number of prospectuses coming in, you know, on average, we, it, it, we had 15 plus prospectuses coming in on a regular basis every single week. And the great majority of them were going to the shredder. Right. And they and we would say, listen, they, they just don't fit our criteria or they or after it goes through accounting, it, the numbers don't work out. Or once it goes through legal, you know, the shit that they're saying is not really the truth, whatever the case is. Um, but there were a lot that were really wonderful. But we just didn't believe as a team that if they were funded, that they would be able to handle the growth mm -hmm. that we could bring on board. Right. So I sat down with the partners and I said, hey, listen, I I, I believe that. I could go into some of these companies as an advisor and I could help them get to the level where they have the organization in there to be able to handle the growth that we could bring to the table. And after a couple of years of working with them, maybe they, maybe they need us as a venture capital firm, or maybe they don't, maybe they could just fund everything themselves, but either way, instead of shredding this, would it be okay if I were to take a few of them aside and bring them into an advisory firm? So um, that was, that was the onset to, uh, advanced business growth, which, which is a, our advisory firm company where I work with 28 different brands. And that is, you know, that is the next main company. And that is a company that I only really focus on one day a week. Every Wednesday is the day that I work with brands that are doing anywhere from a couple of, you know, a few million dollars a year to billions of dollars a month to go in there and help them do things that I know I'm good at. Not everything, but the things that I know I'm good at that I could bring to the table. Mm -hmm. so that's the next company. Yeah. And, and do you, do you keep a piece then of those companies no. that structure? No, it's just strictly uh, dollars for hours and hours for dollars. That's yeah. So really. for, for that, you know, the, the program actually is called club 28 because we work with 28 brands and, um, uh, and that is strictly advisory. So if there is a, so then that was the original agreement with the, um, with the venture capital firm that I could not, this could only be advice. I could not mm -hmm. take a piece of equity. Otherwise, that would be a breach of my agreement with that company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Richie, I think you had some. So, so I was just going to say, so what were the other companies that you were talking about outside of the venture capital? So in the Club 28, what are some of the others? Because I mean, the obviously with billions. Yeah, the other brands. Because you built multiple businesses. Early on, you were saying you've, you've You're talking done... about the ones that he owns. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So not in Club 28. Correct. Uh, so the clubs, the, uh, the the health programs, which was housed under a company called Wisdom Books, which is all the books, the audios, the videos, the membership sites, that kind of stuff. That is the second. Um, uh, the advisory program. And then we have a, a media buying company. We have a branding company, which is you know where we house our media buying. Mm -hmm. And is that like sort of in the influencer type marketing space? Or is that what you mean by that? Or is that something different? <laughs> No, so the branding company works across. So, so we we had a company a while back, which was a class action noticing firm. So, so one of the one of the companies in Club Twenty Eight was a uh, was an attorney, and the attorney said, "Hey, listen, um, this is what we're doing, and uh, and everything that you do in the online space is like a decade ahead of where the class action noticing space is. And would you want to maybe partner and grow this class action noticing company? And if you do, if you want to do that." I think if your team can handle the, you know, the, the noticing program, the online noticing program, my team could actually bring in all the accounts for these class actions. And I thought that was a, a wonderful idea. And we went through, we spent about six or seven months trying to figure this whole thing out. We launched it. It did very, very well. Um, and, and slowly that company fizzled out. Mm. However, what's wonderful 
about this crappy, crappy industry called the you know class action industry is that there's so many companies that are you know that really deserve to have a class action against them. Then there are these other companies that these attorneys just go after because they know that if I go after them and I tell them, hey, give me some go away money, basically mm-hmm. that could happen. And, and I don't, mm-hmm. I know we're recording and I should, probably shouldn't verbalize that. But in the end, there are good companies that there's a class action against. So what we ended up doing was saying, hey, if the class action aspect of that company that I was part of is going to fizzle out, but we have such an amazing insight into um, every single class action uh, uh, case that has happened, that is happening right now, and that is on the books for the attorney generals to, 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 to look at and to say if that's going to work. I, we already know all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we know that every single class action noticing firm that is going to handle their noticing program, which is going to require these companies to tell everybody there's a class action against us. Here's how you should try to take money from us, right? It's horrible. It's a mm-hmm. crappy industry. But I could go into some of those companies and say, hey, listen, we already understand this. We know where all these ads are going to be placed a, that could hurt your reputation. Mm-hmm. And on average, a lot of companies can lose up to 10% of their revenue for the next couple of years because of all this bad branding. We have a branding company who can piggyback on all of those ads that are going to go out against you. And we can put positive messages mm. on those same areas online if wow. you'd like to. And this is what the cost would be to do that. So that's how we started the branding company. We utilized every single one of our companies has has been very synergistic with everything else that I've ever done so that they could piggyback on each other. Interesting. Hmm. So um, so that was Cambridge Analytica then, correct? <laughs> I'm just playing. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm just playing. So, um, so let, me, let me ask you this because one of the things that you're really good at, and uh, obviously your track record shows this as well, uh, is, is really helping companies to, uh, to build from the standpoint of being able to, uh, really they're built to sell, right, from, yeah. from the start. And so I, I know you're, you're all about metrics and, you know, and how companies are, are built to grow, and, and, and that's actually the name of your report, Built to Grow, What the Fastest Growing Companies Track. Take us through, since scaling is a big part of what we talk about here on the show, Take us through how do you build a company that is built to sell from the start, and what should you be tracking? Um, Had to take so, a drink so on I'm that gonna, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to start that by saying uh, I don't. I've been through the sale process the very hard way, and I and I hated that. You're trying to find somebody to buy an existing company, and then reworking everything inside of my company in order to make it appealing for to get. To get funded, it sucks. It freaking sucks, and it's time consuming. You lose, you lose hair, you lose sanity, you lose sleep. Right? It sucks. Um, however, if you're building a company, I think the easiest way to build, the easiest way to sell a company is to build it, knowing who is already buying that kind of company and who has deep enough pockets to afford the number that you want to sell for. Right? So if you know that, then you build your entity um, perfectly to fit into what they what what their growth spurt is, and then you systematize everything. You know, you want you 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 want systems, you want teams, you want customers, you want everything in there because that's what they're buying, right? So you want to put all that shit together, and then you create a relationship with the companies that you believe would be the best to acquire your company. So let's say. Let's say you have a company that's been in business for whatever, a year or two years, or you're just starting out, whatever the case is. And then you go out there and you find, well, this is the, these are the top three or four companies that are acquiring similar companies to what I'm building, and they have deep enough pockets to afford the number that I think I should have. Then I want to find out who's the acquisition manager inside that company, or I want to find out who's the person in charge of making the decision as to who the acquisition is, the next acquisition for them is going to be. And then I definitely want to create a relationship with them. And you might say, hey, holy crap, you know, those people, um, they might not want to talk to you or they might not want to open up their list of what they're looking for. That's exactly what they want to do. Like they are, they, they are required, an acquisition manager 
is hired in order to find the best next acquisition for them for whatever the reason is, because it's, it's a good fit and it'll help us grow or because we need, we need the team members or one or two assets out of that company to help us to move into a different industry, or we just need the write-off, right? Whatever the, whatever the reason is for that particular acquisition. And, uh, and they've got these checklists where if they could cross all their T's and dot all their I's, then it fits and it will be appealing to them. Not that it's a guarantee, but at least that you'll be on the table. And, uh, and if you create a relationship with that person, then you could keep them up to date as to what you're doing and how you're growing. And you will begin to get offers from those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk then about, let's, let's use a, a, a real life case study here, if you don't mind. Um, we are in the process right now, actually, of launching Podcast Magazine which is ironic in itself. And, you know, if you look at the trolls that are talking about it, you'll find that there's a lot of irony in that. But we're, we're launching Podcast Magazine right now. Um, launching at the end of the month, there's been uh, just some marketing around it, and we're talking to some people. And the inbound has been off the chain with it. I mean, just like people are clamoring to get on the cover. I'm sitting down with Jordan Belfort, Dean Graziosi, Adam Carolla, Dave Ramsey. I mean, just people are all over this thing. And we haven't even launched yet. So we believe strongly that there's a huge opportunity here. At the same token, typical ad revenue doesn't exactly, you know, it's not the most appealing metric in the whole wide world to most folks. And subscriber revenue isn't exactly the most appealing revenue necessarily to, to, to folk. But we know that there's an opportunity here. How would we build this in your way if you were advising us? How would you recommend that we build this to sell? So I think this is a no-brainer, but um, uh, just let me ask a couple of questions if you don't mind. So this will be a physical magazine that will be mailed out, correct? It will start as a digital publication with a limited print run with the eye on doing it as a physical magazine. Very expensive right now to to try to put out a magazine, yes. You have good friends who have magazines, and and a lot of the names that you mentioned are also buddies of mine. So I I understand who, who your target is, and I also understand... The, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the magazine world. And let me just quickly uh, give you a quick analogy here. So this is for podcast fans. This is dedicated to podcast, podcast culture, and taking people deeper into the lives of the podcasters they love and the stories that they can't get enough of. So it's really sort of Sports Illustrated, if you will, or People Magazine, if you will, for podcasts. Yeah, but there's a massive value in podcast owners to be able to be associated with that because it gives us another way to bring in fans yeah. that would have never found us. Like yeah. we do a lot of offline marketing uh, because that that audience who likes the tangible touch of yeah. things is completely different than the people that we are marketing to through email or text or anything else. So yeah. it, there's a lot of values in many different ways here. So the one thing that I, that I know is that um, uh, the magazine world sucks. Like they're they're drowning. Like they don't have the ability to sell advertisements inside of their magazines at this point because they don't have the the viewers that they used to have, Mm -hmm. the readers that they used Mm -hmm. to have, Mm -hmm. right? However, you're coming from a completely different area and you could supply a magazine with a tremendous asset of your internet intelligence, like your ability to grow these communities online like magazines are trying to grow communities online, but they don't have any knowledge of how to do that. Mm-hmm. You're trying to grow a magazine with an lo- immense amount of knowledge of online, yeah. right? So it's a good marriage if it's framed properly. So a lot of this is in the framing. And I, so I would go out there and I'd look and I'd find out who, what is the magazine that you believe if you aligned with, you would be an amazing acquisition for them, mm. right? This is, this is their ability to say, oh, you know what? this is our last ditch effort. We're going to take this chunk of money and we're going to keep this magazine alive and bring it into the next century because we are going to be the first to really infiltrate this new audience, which is, which is probably a combination of internet and radio, mm-hmm. right? You're, I don't know exactly mm-hmm. where your, your audience is coming from, but I think sure. that's it. Sure. Which is huge. So I'd find out who that is. And by the way, I would go huge with that. I would go as big as possible. Like I would go to, not, not necessarily to Fortune, but I'd go to a large magazine who um, has enough 
discretionary revenue to say, this is a kick-ass idea. This is what we're willing to throw at it. Like because entrepreneur a company- magazine. Entrepreneur, yeah. fortune, well, he's saying maybe not fortune. Or would you go to like a Condé Nast or a Meredith straight out as opposed, because most of those magazines are owned by a Condé Nast or a Meredith, if you will. I, I'd, I'd have to do some research yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't just answer that right, right off the top of my head. But yeah, I would go to the magazines that I believed um, could benefit the most, like li- really benefit the most from this. But the framing would be in showing them how this is a, this is an, after the acquisition, this is an immediate bump for them. Mm-hmm. Like it's an immediate bump because we're exposing you to millions of blank or we, or, or our platform is exposing you to millions of this other group, whatever the case is, show them the value and how it's going to move the needle for them. Mm-hmm. Not, don't make them guess at any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Points. Because they don't know when I, when I walk in front of a, a board of directors, if I'm sitting in, you know, at, at a table where there's a bunch of offline people, when I start explaining to them what we can do online, their jaws drop. Hmm. And the exact same thing if when I'm sitting, when, if I'm speaking to a bunch of internet companies, then I will talk to them about offline things and their jaws will drop. Like it's completely like they, these are like two completely different industries that don't like each other and they belittle each other, but they both want to be in bed with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great points. So, so to that end, when, when you talk about building something to grow and, and, uh, and you'll have an opportunity here to direct folks towards wherever you want them to go, whether it's chrisguerrero.com and we'll have, you know, you spell that, et cetera. But, um, right there, you've got that, that free report that talks about built to grow what the fastest comp- uh, growing companies track. What, so what are those key metrics that every business should be looking at on a weekly, monthly, certainly quarterly basis. Yeah. So I'm not going to answer that. Here's okay. why. I mean, I, I may, but I, I believe you do a disservice to a company by saying, here's what your key metrics should be because your key metrics need to be chosen properly to be the, 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 the actions that are most important for you as a company to take, to keep you on the path to growth and then understanding what the exact few actions are that each person inside the organization needs to keep their eye on and needs to track to keep them on path to move the company in the right direction, right? Mm-hmm. So so our key metrics to go for company to company are, for the most part, different for every company. We may have key metrics for the amount of people that we reach, the amount of subscriptions that we have, the amount of the, our, our gross revenue, our net revenue, our revenue to date, our, our, our revenue last year to date. You know, there are key metrics that we need to know depending on the industry that we're in, but it's not synonymous across all industries. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. All right, Chris, we're going to let you jump, man. I know you're a busy guy and you got a million things going on and uh, really appreciate you spending as much time as you did here with us on Beyond 8 Figures. So if people do want more information or to grab the the free report, what where are some of the best places for them to go? Well, they could go to chrisguerrero.com and, uh, and that's all available over there. And there's also, uh, most companies understand what a 360 review is, where they actually do a review on themselves and the people inside of their organization. And it's vital. However, most people don't have a 360 review for their business. And one of the things that I do as either an investor, an advisor, or when I'm building a company is we follow a 360 review for our business to try to figure out where are the easiest ways to penetrate growth. And also, as we're growing, things break. So every six months or so, um, we want to follow this 360 review and figure out, well, what's breaking as we're growing? Because if we don't figure it out now, then it's one, two, three years down the road. And now we're hitting obstacles because we didn't fix this shit. Mm. So we put a, a smaller version of this 360 review that I use on our website. You could get there directly through um, um, builttogrowreview.com. Or you could just go to Chris Guerrero and he'll hit the build to grow review button on the top left of the page. And you can take that for free. It's, you know, awesome. just go there every six months and take it for free. Those are the best places. All right, my man, really appreciate your time, your advice today. Congrats on all the success. And, uh, you know, if you have some folks that uh, you think we should be talking to for Podcast Magazine, send them our way, man. We'd, uh, we'd yeah. love to, love to chat <laughs> with them as well. Thanks for that. All right, we'll let you jump. Rich, Mary. Once again, you know, it's uh, it's the, the story of just, man, you know, in this case, there, there wasn't, and maybe we just didn't have time, but there wasn't really like a whole bunch of, um, uh, you know, of, of down, so like you hear a lot of, you know, 
failure breeds success. Like I didn't get a whole lot of failure out of this guy. <laughs> like he just seemed to keep hitting it after hitting it. But you heard the stress, mm-hmm. the being a personal trainer with 150 or whatever underneath him going into private homes. I mean, that model, I remember that model. Mm-hmm. But then being undercut because they were giving better deals on the renewals. Mm-hmm. It, and then going into brick and mortar. Yeah. I mean, when your income is neck and neck with your debt every month. Yeah. And I do and that was that was interesting too, because I know with time you'll usually be able to get things done the amount of time that you allot to something. If you get a deadline on Monday, you'll get it done by Monday. In business, when you have a certain amount of revenue just like in your house. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with your household. Oftentimes when more revenue comes in, your expenses grow in correlative fashion. So I think he woke up at one point and said, you know what? I can't do that. I need to put some of this away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, close the wallet. But also to his point though, it depends on the business, you know, mm-hmm. not to go into Grant Cardone, Cardone world, but, uh, you know, he says cash is trash. Like, he, as soon as he gets money, he puts it right back into the real estate, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's growing asset, grow, feed the beast or whatever. Yeah. So it's different. Yeah, well, that, that, that'll be a conversation for another day because I literally just saw a video where he talked about rent everything. Yeah. So, yeah, that'll maybe we'll talk about that at some point. We'll get hmm. him on. So, yeah, really, really good stuff from Chris Guerrero. And by the way, just for spelling's sake, that is C-H-R-I-S. And then his last name is G-U-E-R-R-I-E-R-O. So that's Chris Guerrero, G-U-E-R-R-I-E-R-O. And uh, I wonder what those criteria, the criteria is for the, uh, for the 28 Club and, and whatnot. That, uh, but that's a... But it's not only awesome, I'm sure, to be a part of that in terms of getting his guidance and his team's guidance, but I would venture to guess there's probably a lot that comes out of just the 28 companies working mm-hmm. together and leveraging each other's abilities. So there's probably a, it's probably an interesting group worth, uh, worth checking out as well. All right, my friends, that will do it for Beyond Eight Figures today for Richie Ote and Mary Goulet and White Wade and Kelly Pucker. I'm Steve Olsher, and we'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures.